The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. Well, good morning, and welcome to our weekly time together. Uh, my name is Darren Smith, the senior pastor at Tower View Baptist Church. It's good to have you with us. We are coming to you live from Midwestern Seminary, or pre-recorded, I should say, from Midwestern Seminary, and we are grateful for their help once again in getting these videos out. Uh, just a reminder to many of you that uh, this video is also available on YouTube. Many of you are watching that now. Uh, you can use your smart TV to click on that, and as we've tried to get that word out as well. Just a couple other things, be impressed prayer continually for our church as we go forward with the uh, uh, new formats we're doing and, and church members and regular visitors, you should have received that communication. But if you're visiting with us, thank you so much. We are so grateful. Uh, you can go to our website, towerviewkc.com and fill out a visit form there and you can just follow that on the website. We'd love to get in contact with you. If we can help you or serve you or pray for you in any way, please let us know. Well, we are here today in the uh, second chapter of James. We'll be in James James 2, 1 through 13 this morning. James 2, 1 to 13. And what we'll be doing this morning is asking the question, Lord, how should I treat others? How should I treat others? And we'll be looking at the topic of our, our big series here of street-level faith, street-level faith, questions to answer and ask during the pandemic that we're going through currently. And so let me read the scripture for us coming out of the ESV Bible uh, from James 2, 1 to 13. Hear God's word this morning. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say to them, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, well, you stand over there or you sit down at my feet. Have you not, verse 4, then made distinctions among yourselves? and become judges with evil thoughts. Listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored, verse 6, the poor man, and are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Transgressors. For verse 10, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in just one point has become accountable or guilty for all of it. For he who has said do not commit adultery has also said do not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So therefore speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. And finally, verse 13, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together and we'll continue our study this morning. Father, as we come before you once again, just uh, thanking you for, for the book of James. Father, all of your scripture is God-breathed. It's profitable for, for godliness and instruction and correction and, and righteousness, as 2 Timothy 3 says. But Father, we're especially grateful for the book of James. 
in your providence, in your plan, you used James as, as a deep theologian, but one who spoke in such a way, in such simple truth. Father, we're thankful for that. But on this topic of prejudice and partiality, Father, give us great wisdom. We're speaking to those who know that God has created all people in His image, that all deserve respect, and all should be treated equally as image bearers. But Lord, at the same time, if James had to warn congregations in his time, so much more do we need to be reminded in our time, especially in these days where things are so haywire. Father, be glorified in the preaching, the hearing, and doing of your word. Father, thank you for Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, who gave his life for us, who died, buried, and rose again. We pray this today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's a famous story many of you are aware of, of Mahatma Gandhi, the uh, famous uh, uh, Indian um, from India, that is, um, uh, basically protester or civil rights leader, however you want to call it. But back in his student days, as the story goes, he read the Gospels. He read the Bible. He did so all night one night on a Saturday before a Sunday, and he thought maybe he'd found a solution to the, the levels of, of, of partiality, the levels of the caste system of India. And he decided to go to church and ask the pastor how to become a Christian. However, when he entered the building, the usher refused to give him a seat. The white usher did and suggested that he should go worship with his own people, referring to the Indian people. And Gandhi left the church and never returned. And he said to himself and wrote later on and spoke about this, quote, if Christians have caste differences also, I might as well remain a Hindu. If this is how Jesus is, I want nothing to be like him, end quote. You know, you might think the sins of uh, of today are more conspicuous and overt than others. You think of drunkenness and you think of profane speech as readily identifiable. And it's obvious to even the casual observer if someone is intoxicated. And, and the same is true of speech. But if you have eyes and ears, you can instantly know whether such sins are being committed. But some sins, however, like the one we saw with Gandhi, are things that are more covert and secret. For instance, and this didn't happen in Gandhi's story, but adultery is very hard to prove, but we know it happens time and time again. There are things like jealousy, bitterness, and lust. And typically, we wouldn't know if someone is failing in these areas unless they tell us all about their internal struggles. And I mention this today because of what we just read in James chapter 2. I may be wrong, but I get the sense in 2020, especially in this time, that the most secret sin of all may well be of partiality and prejudice. I say it is secret not only because it can't be seen, smelled, or touched, but especially because it's passionately committed to denying that it even exists. People who readily confess they struggle with lust or unforgiveness or bitterness even will be honest enough to admit that they are having that. But partiality and prejudice is, is a totally different sin that we struggle with and often fail to meet. The sin is not only secret, but it's also sinister. It's hard to think of a sin within that is more wicked and contrary to the will of God than having feelings of superiority and condescension we have towards people who are different from us. The most obvious example of this is we look at someone's skin color and conclude for that reason that they're less valuable, that they're, they're, they're less respectable, and they're shown less honor, should be shown less honor. That's a very common thing people have. Or we look at the way someone dresses and the way they talk, or inwardly, we turn up our noses and say, well, clearly they don't get the picture. Or we think of schools that someone's attended and say, you know, that person didn't go to the same school I did, so clearly they're not of the same pedigree that I come from. Or we, we look at someone's common sense or intellectual skills because of where they live. And they, you know the list could go on. 
But the point is, is that there is hardly a more vicious and unchristian sin in the human soul than that of prejudice. And there also of partiality, of discrimination with which we treat people who don't measure up to our standards. Proverbs 28, 21 says this. It says to show partiality is not good. To show partiality, favoritism, to play favorites is not good. And James pulls no punches in addressing this here in chapter two of his letter. He has some fairly harsh things to say. Did you hear those? Verse four, that those who are prejudiced and show partiality have evil thoughts. They dishonor others. They're committing sin. They're transgressors. So why is this so? I mean, why does this happen? Well, Romans two, Paul says that God shows no partiality. And in Acts 10, Peter, after he'd seen the vision, said that God shows no partiality. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 9, Paul commands masters to treat their servants or slaves with fairness and kindness because there is no partiality with God. And therefore, we should neither, should we? In other words, to pass judgment on the basis of how someone looks externally or to discriminate on the basis of racial or, or how much money they have is contrary to the character and behavior of God and must therefore be absent from the lives of those who profess to know Jesus Christ. So the big idea today is simply this. It's a little longer than usual, but hear it today. Because God has laid claim to every area of your life, how you respond to and treat the people that you encounter every day shows how much you understand what God has done for you in the gospel. And what we're going to see today is a little bit different type of sermon. We're going to look at three things today. I want you to see three areas that will help us understand this. James is, we're going to first go through seven things James is not saying, seven quick subpoints. Then we're going to take a look at, at, at the rich and poor he talks about in, in point two. And then finally, we're going to look at reasons why we must not feel prejudice or show partiality. And we'll go through those as we do. The problem James is addressing, though, it apparently is one of socioeconomic class, that there's a rich man and a poor man, or maybe a rich woman and a poor woman. He doesn't give the sex of the person or the gender. He just simply says there's a rich and a poor. And the word partiality in James 2.1 is the same word in Romans 2 and Acts 10 we've quoted already. And so I think James would be perfectly happy for us to apply the principles of this sermon, not only to the prejudice we have in social, economic, and financial, but also to the racial and ethnic prejudices we have. In other words, let me say it this way. How we treat others, whether with honor or dishonor, respect or disrespect, should never be on the basis of rich or race in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's go to that first scene. So you see in James chapter 2, there are two people. They could be two men or two women, and they walk in the church together. And immediately you notice the differences. One is, is decked out in the bling. The other is less so in the rags. And the one is obvious from the start is likely to give more generously to that church where the poor person is likely to benefit from the church and, and not to give. And so you lead the wealthy man, James says, or woman to the best seats in the house and you treat them with the kindness and respect but the poor man is marginalized. Poor woman is marginalized off to the side, often given a place on the floor away from the main action. And so I want to go through what James is not saying in this passage in the first point. What James is not saying, and I'll try to go through these slowly, but I want you to see so we don't draw the wrong conclusions. Here are at least seven subpoints. You probably can fill some more that James is not saying and how it applies to us in these COVID days. First, the wrong conclusion is James is not saying that Christianity is only for the poor. 
James is not saying that we should ignore the rich as if they have no business in the kingdom of God. Wealth does not disqualify someone from seeing and experiencing Christianity. Jesus did say it's it's harder for a rich man to enter the eye of a needle than it is for him to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is clear. You can't serve money and you can't serve God at the same time. But we must be careful not to discriminate against the rich. James is not saying that Christianity is only for the, the financially poor. He's not saying that showing kind he's not saying that showing kindness and courtesy to rich people is wrong. That's what I want you to see. It is wrong only when we do it to the exclusion and detriment of the poor. This is not the social gospel that was famous in the, in the 80s and in the 70s coming out of Latin America. This is that we must show equal consideration and courtesy to both the rich, the middle class, and also the poor. So James is not saying Christianity is only for the poor. Secondly, we must remember that whereas James is, is, is throwing the, the, the book at, at snobbery, which we, when we just cater to the wealthy, he could just as easily denounce the humility, the false humility in which we pity the poor. God wants us to avoid both extremes. We should never identify with the rich and look with disdain on the poor, nor identify with the poor and look with anger towards the rich. There's a balance here. And so that's the second thing that he's not saying. Be careful there. The third thing he's not saying is James is not denouncing all rich people any more than he's praising all poor people. There's no inherent virtue in poverty, nor is there any inherent uh, vice or wrong or sin in wealth. As James says in verse 5, and you can look there again, he says very clearly, Listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? Look, you may inherit nothing in this life and at the same time be made an heir of the kingdom of God and have everything. He will also say later in the letter, the epistle, that one can be physically rich, but spiritually poor. So likewise, one can be physically rich in this world and spiritually rich in this world and spiritually rich in the next. Someone can be spiritually poor in this world and spiritually rich in the next. James is not denouncing all rich people. He's not denouncing all poor people. Fourthly, and I want you to see this, the things that are not happening in this text. James is not denouncing all forms of discrimination. Let me say that again. James is not denouncing all four forms of discrimination. Here he is denouncing discrimination in the church that is based on non-moral grounds. I don't want to get in the, the weeds too much here, but, but I don't want to be misunderstood when I say this. At times, at times, there is an okay biblical precedent to discriminate in some ways. Let me give a very practical example. If you're going away on vacation and you hire someone to watch your home, you probably wouldn't hire someone with seven felonies of armed robbery to watch your home. You would likely hire the person with a spotless record who's going to take care of the things God has given you. James isn't saying we should take into consideration someone's moral or criminal background, or that we shouldn't do that, but, but we can If two people described in James 2 applied the work uh, for work in your company, it's possible that the poor man may not have the skills of the rich man and that the one who is the skillful one may be the one you hire for the job. I don't think James is saying you can't ever discriminate. <coughs> Excuse me. But you are discriminating between the two at some point. James wants us to understand. I think this is the key, church. James wants us to understand that the education, the social rank, the wealth, the ethnicity are irrelevant to the person's moral value, moral dignity. It's irrelevant to their acceptance and standing with God. Look, you're going to make decisions in your life that exclude some and include others. 
The point is, is that God loves and redeems the uneducated. He redeems the genius. He redeems the rich and poor, the black and the white, the Asian and Hispanic, the Gentile and the Jew. Whatever it is, he redeems them all. James is not saying it's wrong to make a hard decision about things you need to make. He's saying, make sure you don't discriminate on the basis of how God sees them. Another thing James is not saying in this passage is that we should not interpret as if he's saying it's wrong to give honor to whom honor is due. Clear case in point, Philippians 2.29. The grounds on which Paul honored Epaphroditus are moral and spiritual. Epaphroditus proved himself in ministry by giving himself wholly to the work of God. And Paul commanded the Philippians to honor men like Epaphroditus. As pastors at the church, as pastor elders at our church, church, you do such a good job of, of, of honoring us, not just during you know, Pastor Appreciation Month, but, but throughout the year. And we don't look for that. We don't seek that. But, but the encouragement, the edification, and the honoring that you do of us, as Paul says, and instructs the uh, congregations is something I think James has in view. James' point is that we must never give preferential treatment on someone based on their physical appearance or their bank account. So we don't be afraid to congratulate someone for an accomplishment. I mean, celebrate what God has given you in His common grace. But don't hesitate to point out to others the spiritual growth of a particular person, whether they're rich or poor or whatever they are. It's another thing. Six, and I know there's a lot of detailed church. We don't always preach like this, but I want you to see what he's not saying. James is not saying, number six, that it's wrong or sinful for wealthy people to wear jewelry or fashionable clothes any more than he's telling a poor person that they should be deliberately dressed in ragged and in a dirty way. You know, some people dress worse than they, 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 they have to act as a rebellion against the cultural trends of their day or as, a, as an expression for the establishment or, or, or an expression of false religion or false piety. Similarly, some rich people overdress to be noticed, to show off, to let everyone know just well how they've succeeded in life. You know, they wear their best all the time. But James couldn't care less about how you dress so long as it comes with propriety and dignity and modesty. I think that's in view in the, in the chapter. Finally, the things James is not saying. Point number one here. James is not telling the poor to come to church ragged and disabled, even if they have the opportunity to improve their lot in life. Nor is he telling the rich to dress down to hide their wealth as if something of which they should be ashamed. What James is saying is simply this. As long as you did not become poor because of your sloth and negligence or rich because of your deceit and your theft, your socioeconomic class, your 401k status, your financial bank account status is absolutely irrelevant in the eyes of God and should be equally irrelevant in the eyes of those who you worship with in the church. James wants us to treat each other the way God has treated us, which is to say, God did not choose you because you were stronger, faster, wiser, or anything else than anybody else. That's 1 Corinthians 1. He chose you because he chose you. As Deuteronomy 7 says, he told Israel, I loved you because I loved you. And so too, James says, you do not choose people in your church, in leadership positions, in membership, whatever it is, simply because of what they bring to the table. You choose them as God leads you because he's brought them to the table as he brought you based on nothing but grace and grace alone. Again, the gospel is all over the book of James. But I want to dig deeper here in the second point. Those are some things James has not said and is not saying. But I want to take a closer look here at the poor and the rich. 
are these two people hypothetical or are they actual? I mean, is James just throwing out an example like we do, or did this actually happen? Well, they're undoubtedly, these are people visitors or, or newcomers to the church, and they're portrayed as needing somewhere to sit. The phrase wearing a gold ring in verse two literally means gold finger, not James Bond stuff, but the gold finger, and it's used only here in the New Testament. He means someone who comes with multiple rings. I, you know, some, we have some Patriots fans in our church. Imagine Tom Brady, who's now with the Buccaneers, wearing all six or five or six of his Super Bowl rings. That's kind of the picture you get here. Again, he isn't saying it's wrong to wear expensive jewelry. He isn't saying that if someone does, that, 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 they, that they do that, that we should ignore them when they walk in or escort them out and say, you're too rich to be here, get out of here. That's not what he's saying. James's point is that we must be careful not to let those gold rings, those expensive garments, the thoughts of, wow, if we can get this person in our church, what can we do financially? We can make budget for the first time in 20 years. Simply put, bling counts for nothing in the kingdom of God. That's what James is saying. And the phrase in verse 3 where it says, and, and you can look there in verse 3, and if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing, it means that when you give special consideration to or look with admiration on a person solely because of their external appearance, you have done absolutely wrong. But the converse, the reverse is also true here. If you look away or you look with anger upon those who come to your service wearing only what they perhaps have, you have what verse 4 says, you become judges of them all. You know, this happened in our early history of America, a very famous passage of time for us. Jonathan Edwards, known as America's preacher, uh, greatest preacher perhaps in the 18th century in New England, they were often violating James' commands to the very core. In the church where he was in Northampton, Massachusetts, seating was not first come, first served, as it often is with us, but it was a sign based upon things as age, gender, social, military rank, how much they gave to the, the offering. And when they constructed a new building with, with uh, Edwards as a pastor in 1737, they assigned the best seats based on all those factors. And the wealthier citizens were given preferential seating while the poor were relegated to sitting in the gallery or the back pews. And I should point out that Edwards, as he often was, he had some blind sides as we all do. But in this case, he was adamantly opposed to such arrangements, even though he was outvoted. James too had very practical implications, even in the life of one of America's greatest preachers. So why do people act this way? And what is going on beneath the surface that inclines our hearts to prejudice and gives us into preferential treatment to other people? Why do we do that? Why do we do that? I mean, kids do this. Why? One reason people treat poor people poorly is because they know they're unable to be serviced to anyone else materially or socially. Often when we give or serve other people, we don't say it, but we serve them based upon what we expect to get back from them. And James again says that's not correct. In fact, the only thing they might do is embarrass us in the presence of others whose respect we so deeply cherish. Terrible illustration, but I wrote it down, church, bear with me, because we're in those young kid days in, in the great a classic American movie, Cars 2, with Mater and Lightning McQueen. This happens so clearly. If you know that movie, you know Mater's a tow truck with dents all over him. And he goes around the world with Lightning McQueen. And one day, Mater's just being the the kind of bumpkin country kid he is, and he embarrasses Lightning McQueen. And Lightning gets mad at him and says, basically, get out of here, you're embarrassing me, get away from me. And that's a, kind of a very simple illustration of what James is saying. 
We exalt and praise and pamper the rich in order to get ourselves in them so that we might profit from them, but we exclude the poor to a point where it is unbiblical. So why then do we cater to the rich? We do it, church, because we are greedy and prideful. Because we want something, we covet something that they have that we think by association, or hey, I know this guy, that we can throw the trump card in. So why does it prevail in our hearts? It's unbelief. It's not because we don't want it. It's because we don't believe God has it. And James will speak to this later. He'll speak about prayer in chapters four and five, how we come to him in prayer and we ask for all these things, but we don't receive them because our hearts are so turned from him being God. So the final thing I want to see this morning, reasons why we must not feel prejudice or partiality. We've looked at the wrong things. We've looked at some context. And now we're going to dig a little bit deeper. What James says here that are found in verses 1 to 7, and, and we'll trickle a little bit into 8 through 13, but mainly 1 to 7, of why we must not feel prejudice or partiality. Let's, let's look at the first subpoint here. Prejudice and partiality, if you look at verse 1, are inconsistent with the Lord of glory. Did you see that there? My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Don't overlook how Jesus is described by James here in verse 1. Why does he use the unusual descriptive phrase that Jesus is the Lord of glory? The likely answer is that the heart of prejudice is owning our own glory. And we don't want to give that glory to God, so we want it ourselves. And so he says that we want to be powerful and wealthy and we want people around us who are influential to take notice of us. And we want to avoid the embarrassment that comes from being associated with the weak and impoverished and inconsequential people that can never do anything for us. So before he addresses the issue, he reminds them that they are to show no partiality because Jesus Christ is Lord. So we show no partiality or give any other bad treatment because we believe that God is who he said he was and he came to do and did do in the person and work of Christ what we could never do for ourselves. James wants us to see that if we know and love and trust in God and what he is for us in Jesus, that he's the Lord of glory, that we won't be controlled by the craving for human praise and acceptance. Isn't this what Paul said in Galatians 1.9? He said, if I am seeking the praise of men, then I should be anathema. I should be accursed. If Christ himself is our glory, he is the glory we need. If Christ himself is the security of our souls, we won't seek it in what others can supply or not supply. We'll seek it in him. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, Matthew 6, and these things shall be added unto you. So ask yourself, church member this morning, why would you seek the favor of those, the approval of those, and of those who, who have more influence in this life, and why would you avoid association with those who don't? Why do you feel drawn to one group and repelled by the other? Is it not because, if we're honest, if we look at our history, because of our craving of glory and recognition and the comforts of life that you think some might provide? But if you genuinely know Jesus and who he is and you are confident in him, and if you draw every breath in, in, in seeking to praise him as often as you can by the power of his spirit and the grace that he gives, what possible place of prejudice could we have in our hearts? And I'd suggest also that James has in mind here the reference he makes again in verse 2 to gold rings and fine clothing. He says, do you think that glory resides in what people own? Do you think glory is found in the weight or worth and glisten of gold and the shiny, silky, fashionable clothes? He says, please, stop it. 
The only glory that is glory indeed is found in Jesus Christ. And church, let us remind ourselves of that. That our church, it could grow and grow and grow, but if it's not glorifying God and how we point back to him, we're just building our own kingdom and not his kingdom. Second thing I think he's saying here is is that to show partiality towards the rich by giving them special treatment or to harbor prejudice towards someone of another ethnicity is again, verse four, to set ourselves up as judges. But you and I aren't judges, are we? Only God is. You and I must never take over the role or right that belongs to God. And we have no right to envision ourselves sitting behind a bench, passing judgment, saying you can come in and you cannot come in. James 4.2, he says this, there's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? Thirdly, what James is saying is that prejudice and partiality are inconsistent with the heart of God himself as seen in his choice of the poor to inherit eternal life. Notice that in verse five. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of his kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? Look, to harbor prejudice in your heart is to belittle God and his sovereign work on saving those whom he will. To put it bluntly, if you're ashamed of the poor, we should be ashamed of God because God is not ashamed to choose the poor. And so if we think that God cannot save those who are below us financially or socioeconomically, then we've missed the point of what God came to do. Jesus was poor, wasn't he? Isaiah 53 says there's nothing beautiful on him that we should look upon him, but yet he was the perfect son of God who came. So again, neither Paul nor James or any other author of scripture is suggesting that poor people will be saved or that rich people will be lost. Look, God calls both. We need folks of, 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 of certain places of influence for God to use. And we need people in certain places of not influence for God to use. God has a plan for each person. But with a plan is not for us to make judgment on who or who shouldn't be. The point is, is that what possible reason could we have for treating one with contempt and the other with generosity? No more than selfish motives. Where I think James is saying what he is getting to is that prejudice and partiality not only dishonor God by taking the role of judge, but they also dishonor the poor by uh, forgetting that they are created in his image. Verse six, but you have dishonored the poor man. Look, all humans, not just the poor, but also the rich are to be treated with the honor and dignity that comes with being created and fashioned in the image of God. Church, let's be honest, we're a Southern Baptist church, and this goes without saying our history as the early parts of the Southern Baptist Convention, and we've tried to repent of this and, 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 and do things to overcome this, but we've had a rough history. Even in 50 years ago, Southern Baptist churches had a rough history with those who were not of the same color, with those who were not in the rich or not of the right class. But I want to remind you, that what we have in our God is that God says all are created in his image. Look, if we fight for the unborn and no matter what color, what race, what, what, what they may uh, come out of their mother to be, if we fight with our last breath for those people, we should equally fight for all those who claim the name of Jesus, no matter their color. And friends, I know we know that, and I know that's true, but to hold that position in a day like today is going to get you in trouble. Take up your cross and follow Christ. 
We are one in Christ. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We have more church, and I've mentioned this before, as we, especially as we preach through the book of Mark, we have more in common with an Iranian Christian than we have with the guy across the street with a big truck who has a big American flag that flies him all across and he goes down and drives down the road. If that person is a Christian, you are united eternally in union with Jesus Christ. You have more in common with them than you have with someone who's across the street who shares the same flag with you. Count the cost. I also believe here, James is saying, fifthly, that to have prejudice and partiality, to cater to people, is to oppress and treat with injustice the people of God. Notice verses 6 and 7. You see, in that context, James wrote, and where his audience lived, many among the rich were oppressive in their treatment of the poor. Not all, mind you, but, but probably most of them were. There were probably more poor people in the kingdom of God, and they were especially vulnerable to the exploitation and injustice of the part of those who are wealthy. But he says, and, and this you can actually go to James chapter 5, and I'll read this to you. James 5, 4-6 says this. He said, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence, James 5, 5. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. That being the case, says James, why would you single out special treatment for those who have more money? It makes no sense to that. The rich would take advantage of their money and influence to bribe the courts. And I think we've all been or know a church where there's a certain group of people, and I praise God, Tower of You, we don't have this at our church. There's a certain group of people who have influence and clout that are some of the most ungodly folks, and, and nothing in the church can move forward without their approval, even though it's not what God always wants. And, and, and that is exactly what James is preaching against. To cater is to be sinful. How ridiculous and inconsistent for us to cater to the needs and whims and overlook the most obvious needs and pains of those who are poor in our midst. As we close, I once want to remind you that prejudice and partiality, church, whether based on racial or socioeconomic grounds, will not go away easily. Many today mistakenly think that the answer to prejudice in the human heart is legislation. If we just get the right person in office, it'll all go away, it'll all be fine. Now, don't misunderstand me. In many cases, there are legal steps to be taken to protect the rights and dignity of certain individuals who are at a disadvantage through no fault of their own. We understand that. Our son, Simeon, many of you know, has special needs, and we have to uh, fight for his rights many times, even in public places. But I'm not here to pass judgment on one way or another of such measures, but I hope we would all agree on this, church, that any and all forms of segregation and along racial and socioeconomic lines must be eradicated, especially in the household of God. Not all of the legislation in the world can transform the passions and dispositions of the human heart. We can implement new laws and regulations and hiring procedures and countless other steps that have a biblical basis, but those things cannot change the human heart. As with every issue, there must first be a work of God's grace in the human heart. And friend, that's the same with abortion, as terrible as that is. We can legislate until the cows come home, as my dad used to say, but until people's hearts are changed by the grace 
found in Jesus alone, it will not matter. And non-Christian, we usually speak to you throughout the sermon. We haven't talked to you yet. Let me just say a word to you. You can come and feel and say, well, this doesn't matter to me. Look, you can try and please God by being rich. You can try to please God by being a good person, by being sincere, by helping people with groceries during this time or running errands for them or whatever good deeds you have. Non-Christian, can I speak to you? Nothing can change your standing with God except repenting and believing in the risen Jesus Christ. For all have sinned, the Bible says, and fall short of the glory of God. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And at just the right time, Christ came to die for the ungodly like you, like me, like everyone. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe on your heart, that in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Saved from what? Saved what verse 13 said. Look back at verse 13. For judgment is without mercy to the one who shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. God has given you a window, non-Christian friend, in this time. You're hearing this. God has given you a window to repent and turn back. He could return any time. We not, know not the day or the hour. You could die any time whether it's through COVID or, or you, you run a marathon and you pass out or you just gorge yourself, whatever. You could pass away anytime, place. The question is, do you know this God? The Lord of glory, the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you put your faith in him? That is the only way your heart will change. And Christian, we must be reminded of that too. There must first be a work of God's grace in human heart if prejudice and partiality will be tackled. Although much could be said, let me mention one more thing that all men and women are created in the image of God. And for that reason alone, they are endowed with dignity and worth, not only in the eyes of their creator, but also in ours as well. When you look upon a rich person or poor person, a Hispanic, a, a Japanese person, a, a Caucasian person, or a teenager, a Wall Street eject, uh, executive, a baby in the womb, someone who's crossing a border, you're looking on people shaped and fashioned in the image of our great God. And I'm not trying to make a political statement. I'm making a theological and spiritual statement. And until such a time as you and I feel the force of this truth James is talking about in our hearts, we will never win the war, especially in God's house, against partiality and prejudice. One last thing. Church, as we come to this time, as we congregate, as we look for ways to, to love our neighbor and, and, and physically gather as best we can for those who are able and, and, and meeting the guidelines, may I just say this? Just as Gandhi fought against uh, uh, the uh, caste system in India without Christ, we should fight against divisions within Christ. If you are at home and you're watching this, can I just say a special word to you? You are not less of a Christian if you're staying home right now trying to protect yourself, trying to take care of others who need that, the vulnerable, because you can't congregate. You're not less of a Christian. Just as the homebound weren't less of a Christian pre-COVID, you are not less of a Christian uh, staying home and watching, trying to protect yourself. For those who will congregate with us physically, six feet apart, two meters, all that great social distance stuff, you are not the hardcore. You are not the super serious elect. You are a Christian who is able to do that. Praise God for that. But together we are one church. Together we are one faith, one Lord, one baptism. Do not let even the way that people are congregating the best they can in these days separate us and allow pride and prejudice and partiality to come in. Church, our, our statement says, that old Baptist statement, 
are, uh, that we do not forsake the assembling together unless we are, quote, providentially hindered. For some of you, that providential hindering, God's fencing of your life may keep you at home. For others, it may be in our drive-in service. For others, it may be the green space that we have near our building we're opening up for you to worship six feet apart outside in these warmer months. But together, we have one Lord, and all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. What a great God we serve. Let's pray, and we'll close today. Fathers, we come before you. Uh, this is a topic that in these days seems so, I, Lord, it just seems out of place to some listening to this. Perhaps, well, Lord, don't we have other issues to tackle? Lord, we certainly do. But Father, I pray for our church, of Tower View Baptist Church, and all those covenant members who hear this and will partake in this. Father, would you open our hearts and ears that if there's any bigotry, if there's any uh, forgiveness that needs to be received or, or, or unforgiveness repented of, Father, would you bring those to the table? Father, I thank you that your grace covers a multitude of sins. And I thank you, Lord, you've taken them as far as the east is from the west. But at the same time, Lord, you call us vertically to be in relationship, but also horizontally. So Father, in our church, protect us from partiality, protect us from prejudice, protect us from playing favorites, protect us from things that would disunify the body, even the simple thing like how we may reopen a church. Father, you've blessed our fellowship with such a strong, unified front. May not the evil one, Father, be able to get in and sow a seed of discord. Father, be glorified. We love you. We praise you. We ask these things today in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, thank you for watching and God bless.